unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Bhaisna. It has been an absolutely harrowing week in India. The country is reeling under the effects of a devastating second wave of the coronavirus. It's responsible for more than 300,000 new cases a day and more than 2,000 fatalities. These official numbers, of course, are almost certainly a dramatic undercount, the, the true numbers. These worrying developments have come as a rude awakening to India's citizens as the country's political leadership has consistently proclaimed that it successfully defeated the virus and that the economy was returning to full strength. To understand what's driving this new second wave of the virus and the global health implications of the surge, I'm joined on the show today by Professor Anoop Malani. Anoop is the Lee and Brenna Freeman Professor at the University of Chicago Law School. It is also a professor at the Pritzker School of Medicine. And just yesterday, Anoop was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, one of the nation's oldest and most prestigious honorary societies. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Anoop, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. So, Anoop, before we get into the current crisis in India, I want to rewind the clock a little bit. You know, if you go back to just a couple of months ago, politicians, policymakers across the country were publicly proclaiming that, you know, India had defeated COVID, the country was well on its way towards a full recovery. And I think both domestically and internationally, there was a kind of widely held perception that India had dodged a major bullet. With hindsight, do we understand why it is that India was largely spared by the first COVID wave? Um, I think we have some ideas, but I, I think we want to question the premise uh, first uh, before we uh, try to answer it, uh, answer the question you raised. The first is, you know, we're not 100% sure what happened in the first wave. Uh, we do know that there was massive undercounting of actual cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's talk of massive undercounting of deaths right now. Uh, if anything, that might have been worse the first time around. So the first thing we need to admit is uh, it could have been that the first wave was meaningfully larger than we thought. So that's the first thing. Um, but let's suppose that that we we did dodge it in the first wave and that we're getting the second wave. A second question I think we want to ask is, is the second wave uh, actually worse than the first wave? Uh, so when we, we try to say, how, how, how did we manage the first wave? We need to figure out if, in fact, the second wave is, is maybe as good as the last wave. I know it's hard to imagine that in the middle of a crisis. But it's important to remember that this wave seems to have, while the peak is higher, rose much more quickly uh, uh, than the first wave. The, the, the last wave was just a, a very long uh, running wave that lasted about two months. Um, so we have yet to see what's, what's going to happen here. But then if we go back to the first wave and ask, you know, why was it okay? Um, I, I think what we're, we're asking is not so much why did... Uh, a lot of people not get infected. I think a very high number of people got infected. Um, I think if you look at uh, uh, seroprevalence surveys, we 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 would probably uh, uh, understand, or we probably think that the first wave, the official reports, vastly undercounted the number of cases. I think the thing that's remarkable about the first wave, if if we thought we escaped the problem, um, is that it had a very low number of deaths. Uh, now. Assume that those death counts are correct. Um, there are a standard set of explanations that people have been exploring, but the jury is out. The first is some sort of cross immunity, uh, either because of existing coronaviruses uh, that are endemic to India uh, and maybe other low income countries. India's experience wasn't necessarily uh, isolated. 
Uh, another possibility is BCG vaccine. I think we're investigating both of those. Uh, there's an effort to, to study whether or not BCG vaccine generates the type of uh, antibodies that would be uh, um, effective against uh, at least the old variants of COVID. That's a study that's, I think, undergoing uh, being undertaken. As for the cross-immunity, one of the challenges is figuring out um, whether, in fact, uh, um, people that had uh, 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 antibodies to the new uh, coronavirus, so COVID-19, uh, were individuals who would also have generated antibodies to the old coronaviruses. That's just a, a hard question. It can be done, uh, but it, it's to be done. There's also the discussion about genetic uh, advantages. Uh, so I think a lot of people may have remembered the science article, I think a science or nature article suggesting that, that uh, um, there is a, a gene variant uh, inherited from Neanderthals that, um, uh, that was quite common in India and in parts of Europe uh, that might be protective against the most severe harms uh, from COVID. Um, I think that's a potential. I think it deserves some exploration. But I would say my biggest, uh, my preferred explanation, the one that I'm, I'm spending the most time thinking about is, is something called survivorship bias. Um, uh, and uh, it has some interesting implications. So the basic idea is um, in India, individuals uh, face a lot of uh, uh, disease burden, meaning there are a lot of diseases that could um, strike you down. Uh, and one implication of that is individuals with frail uh, health, uh, particularly frail immune systems, are um, uh, uh, lost to other diseases uh, over time at a faster rate than, say, in developed countries like the United States or countries of Europe. Um, what that means is the people that are left over are particularly robust. They have very strong immune systems. Uh, and that would lead you to have a robust response to COVID. Uh, so if that's the case, uh, then what's really going on is that, you know, the people didn't die in the first wave of COVID in India, in part because they'd already succumbed to other diseases earlier. So yes, we had a lower IFR. It's because of the, the disease burden people generally face in India. But the flip side is it tells us that we lost those people much earlier. So the you don't want to celebrate the low IFR. You want to say, basically, we probably could have saved them so that at least they got to COVID. You know, one of the factors that you haven't explicitly mentioned is demographics, right? So there are a lot of people saying that by virtue of the fact that the median age in India is, you know, around 27, 28, um, and we know that younger people, even though they might be carriers are more likely to be asymptomatic or not be hit as hardly, as hard, excuse me, could that be playing a role here? Yeah. If you look at the total number of deaths, it is surely playing a role. The fact that we have a, a uh, age structure that skews young uh, relative to, say, developed countries. Um, uh, that certainly plays uh, a big role. It, it doesn't necessarily explain why our IFR was different. And, and let me be clear about um, terms. So IFR is infection fatality rate. It is the probability that you die given that you are infected. And here it's infected with COVID. Now, we can calculate IFR uh, just overall for the population. It's low for India in part because it skews young. But what we often do is we calculate the IFR uh, given your age or conditional on age. So we calculate what's your infection fatality rate if you're 20 to 30 uh, versus the infection fatality rate if you're 60 to 70. Something In other like words, that. this is got age-adjusted fatality rate. Exactly. And what's interesting about what we see in India is that age-adjusted, um, India has a lower IFR based upon the official numbers, and meaningfully so, maybe an order of magnitude or larger. Uh, that, at least that's what we found in, for example, our Karnataka study. 
Um, so the question we want to ask ourselves maybe is why is it that a 20 year old uh, has a, uh, it's not exactly the right way to put it, but a 10 times lower probability of dying given infection in India than in the United States. Um, why is that also true? Uh, and maybe even more so for the elderly. One of the interesting things that we find in, in our, a study of IFR based on a number of serological studies in India is that the relative advantage that the elderly have in India are even greater than the relative advantage that the youth have, um, which is a bit of a puzzle, uh, actually. But in either case, our IFR overall and conditionally on age is lower. Um, and that also means that your overall deaths are going to be lower. So you alluded to the fact that you know we have a number of serological studies. You yourself have been engaged in many influential seroprevalence surveys that were conducted during 2020. Um, could you outline for us what you set out to do when you designed these surveys and what some of the key takeaways were? I know you you did many studies. You did some in Karnataka. You did some in Mumbai. You did some with with migrants in Bihar. But if you had to kind of identify what some of the key top lines are, what would they be? The key one is that we're massively undercounting deaths, uh, sorry, cases, uh, if we only look at confirmed cases. So, so let's step back uh, and think about how we count COVID cases. Okay, so the first thing is we go out and we do some testing. We, meaning the government in this context, um, they do some testing. Now, once you do the testing, there are two ways that you can estimate how prevalent uh, the diseases. One is just total count the, uh, count the total number of cases, which is the, the common approach. The problem with that approach uh, is that if you don't do enough testing, you might not capture everybody that's infected. So if there are more people infected than tests, you will definitely undercount. A second approach is to calculate the rate of positivity on tests. So sometimes it's called a positivity test, a positivity rate. That is, uh, you calculate the following fraction the number of positives divided by the number of tests done. Okay, that's the positivity rate. That's a, maybe a better estimate, but that has separate two separate problems. The first one is if you are um, seeking out people uh, that are infected to test, then you're going to get an overestimate of the, positive, of, of, the, of the fraction of the population that's actually infected. And the second is one of the very interesting things about um, uh, the way we do testing policy around the world, this is not specific to India, this is, you know, from the WHO down, uh, is that we, when we see that the positivity rate is too low, we encourage countries to test more, thinking that the reason why the positivity rate is low is because uh, we're not testing enough. And, and the problem with that is that that means that your positivity rate is a function of how much you're going to test. That causes confusion in trying to estimate um, what exactly is the fraction of the population infected? So those two solutions don't work. So the question is, what do, what's a better solution? And the better solution is, you know, I want to randomly select from the population people to, to test, regardless of what they look like, whether they have symptoms or don't have symptoms, whatever their contact history is. I just want to estimate uh, what fraction of test those people and estimate what fraction have the infection. And then I can get a sense of or a good estimate of what is the uh, the overall prevalence of the population of this in this population uh, overall prevalence of covid in this population that was the goal of, of these studies and and the result of them was we were massively massively underestimating maybe perhaps 40 to 100 times uh, the number of people infected if we use the first method um, and surprisingly we were actually maybe underestimating it if we use the, the the second method but either way we were getting it wrong but doesn't that mean that 
the Indian anomaly is even more striking because many, many more people than uh, official records suggest had contracted the virus, but the deaths were then even smaller as a fraction. That's exactly right. Um, early on in the pandemic, people were focused on something called the case fatality rates. That is, that, that is the following fraction. Uh, it is the number of confirmed deaths divided by the number of confirmed cases. Okay. Now let's suppose that we count deaths correctly. Let's just assume that for a second. Yeah. If you go from a case fatality rate to an infection fatality rate, the thing that you do is you replace the denominator, you replace right. the confirmed cases with the actual number of infections may be estimated from one of these population level surveys. Right. And you're exactly right. It massively increases the denominator. And so the IFR falls uh, relative right. to the CFR and it's very low. So yes, the first order effect of the results of these serological surveys was we suddenly thought that the IFR uh, was much lower uh, than before because we were kind of making inferences from a case fatality rate. You know, those of us who are not in the scientific community have tried to become experts in the last uh, year, year and a half as we've been trying to struggle, right? Uh, and so concepts get thrown around constantly, including this concept of herd immunity. I think a lot of people looked at the serological surveys and said, wait a second, if more than 50% of the surveyed populations in some of these areas had COVID antibodies, then India must be well on its way towards herd immunity. Now, clearly what we're seeing now at the second wave, that was a mistaken view. So in hindsight, kind of what did we miss or what did we get wrong by kind of assuming that herd immunity was a threshold that was either approaching or that we had crossed? Okay, so let's define concepts. So herd immunity is important epidemiology because we think that once we achieve some level of herd immunity, that the spread of the epidemic slows. It doesn't disappear. It means the something called the reproductive rate uh, falls below one. When the reproductive rate is below one, that means each person infected infects less than one additional person. And so slowly the epidemic is going to uh, uh, peter, peter out. Um, now, that's why we care about it. We want to get RT reproductive rate below one. We think herd immunity gets us there. Now, here's the fundamental problem is that herd immunity is not an objective fact. It depends on how much people interact and thereby spread the infection, okay? So for example, if you imagine a society with a high level of activity, you're gonna need a lot of people infected uh, before you reach what's called herd immunity. If you imagine a society with very few people interacting, say rural India or even right. developed countries that are even more sparsely populated, you're going to need fewer people infected to reach that critical point. Now, what complicates it even more is that people change their behavior within a country over time. So if you go from no lockdown and regular activity, say in February 2020, to lockdown and very little activity in April 2020, then all of a sudden the amount of people that have to be infected to keep, people, keep, keep the infection growth rate down, keep RT below one, um, that number is much lower. The problem is the following, is that when we relax from lockdown uh, and people interact more, and I'm not saying lockdown was the only thing that's responsible. A lot of people right. are self-protecting. But as we then relax our, our precautions and we engage in more activity, then all of a sudden the threshold for herd immunity to control the epidemic rises. And so um, all of a sudden you're going to have more infections. Now, what we really should be asking ourselves is something like the following, which is very hard to do because we haven't seen this for a long time, about a year and a half. We want to ask ourselves, if we resume the level of activity that we saw in April, May 2019, 
how many people would have to be infected for the reproductive rate to fall below one. That would be the herd immunity threshold we want. But we haven't approached that level of activity yet. And I know we all say, oh my gosh, people are being uh, uh, too risk-taking. They're not wearing masks and things like that. I I just don't think that we've reached the level of activity or uh, uh, nonchalance that we had back in 2019. So we can't see what level of of people need to be infected for us to reach herd immunity. Does that make sense? So that makes sense. But one of the things I think that is not well understood, um, and it's there in your studies, but it may not get translated to the kind of broader public, is that there's a lot of internal variation within India in terms of the prevalence of antibodies, isn't there? So when you hear that some areas might have as high as 50%, that's there's a lot of internal heterogeneity. Yeah. And, and I, I'll complicate a little bit more because, in fact, the level of antibodies is declining, and that's not alarming. You shouldn't be alarmed by it, but it does make it hard to figure out how many people are actually infected. So let's, let's break that down in two parts. First, there's a lot of heterogeneity. So in July 2020, uh, our study uh, in Mumbai found that 55% of slums, slum dwellers, on average, had uh, uh, antibodies, uh, and only 15%. I'm simplifying the numbers, rounding them around, but it's 55%, 55 versus 15.15 in non-slums. So massive heterogeneity. And there are two possible explanations. One is, you know, slum dwellers, even in lockdown, are in crowded housing conditions. Right. That's my preferred explanation. I have a, a paper that kind of favors that uh, uh, explanation uh, using common toilets and things like that. Um, uh, whereas, uh, people in low income areas, in high income areas didn't have that. They each had an apartment with their own toilets. They didn't have to interact as much with others, even though it's a dense city. Um, an alternative explanation is that people in slums were more mobile, uh, and they went around. I, I don't think that's the right explanation. It seems like mobility patterns are roughly the same for slum dwellers and non-slum dwellers. It fell massively during the, the lockdown. Um, so, so one thing is that slums had a lot more. Then when we went to Karnataka, another thing that we found, and so this was around the same time, so June, July, August, we found that uh, overall prevalence in Karnataka was very high, 46% uh, zero prevalence uh, was high uh, across the state, but there was a big gradient between urban and rural. Rural areas had basically 10 percentage points lower zero prevalence, prevalence of antibodies, than urban areas did. Again, consistent with this basic idea that right. that are more crowded are more likely to have been infected uh, in that first wave. And by the way, I just want to point out that these studies were done before. In hindsight, we know the actual peak of the wave occurs, wave one occurs in September, October. These are the ones done before that. Then in the middle of the epidemic, um, uh, we did a study in Tamil Nadu, which found a similar sort of urban rural uh, gradient. But then we learned a second thing, which is very interesting. And it wasn't the first time we saw it. The second thing that's really important about that is not only is there heterogeneity across places, because some places, more crowded places are more likely to ha- get infected, um, and thus actually have different thresholds for herd immunity, going back to your previous question. But the second thing we learned was that antibodies are a very short-term measure uh, of infection. So let me give you two examples. Um, the first one was Tamil Nadu. In, in Tamil Nadu, uh, in October, we found that about 32% of the population uh, had antibodies. Okay, but Tamil Nadu is right next to Karnataka. In Karnataka, in July, August, we're finding 46%. How is that possible uh, that two adjacent states have such dramatically different results? One possibility is that, in fact, uh, individuals, once they're infected uh, for a short period of time, have antibodies, maybe three months, maybe six months that are detectable, and then those decline. 
So what could be happening is that Tamil Nadu hit its peak a little bit earlier uh, and was on its way down uh, when it measured 32%. By the way, we got some evidence that's consistent with this back in Mumbai, because in an unreported version of the study uh, done in August rather than July, we sampled slums and non-slums, and we found that actually uh, maybe antibodies declined uh, in, in slums during that period by a few percentage points. Not statistically significant necessarily, but enough to make us wonder, even though official infections are rising, how, how are antibodies staying constant in slums? So the way to think about it is serological studies are very important. They tell us a lot, but they give us a kind of, you can only look back maybe three to six months and find out what happened, not all the way to the beginning of the epidemic. So if we come to the current crisis, you have written elsewhere that there are three explanations for the second wave. And I just want to put in a plug for uh, your Substack, your research notes. We'll put on the link on the show notes so people can can subscribe to um, uh, the, the fascinating deep dives that that you're conducting with real data. I want to ask you about these explanations. And the first one that you point to is that the current spike we're seeing today in India started in a district, Maharashtra, Amravati, eastern part of the state, and that kicked off the spread. Now, as you point out, this is more an explanation about where the second wave started, not exactly why it happened, but how confident are we in this kind of origin story? Uh, I would say uh, only slightly confident. Uh, so if we look at the timing of the infection, uh, it does seem that Amrauti, uh had the most notable infection earlier, uh, had the most uh, notable early infection in this wave, uh, so early, uh, early outbreak in this wave. So if you look at the data, you will see that Amrauti in the second week of February had a spike. Okay. Um, now, the good news is that it, 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 that, that spike went down after two or three weeks, but it, it is the first it seems to have the spike. Um, and if you look out, uh, you will see that uh, adjacent districts um, seem to have a spike just a little bit later. So that's all positive for suggesting Amrauti is the cause. Um, but the problem is that there are other places like Tane uh, that seem to have the spike almost as early as um, uh, uh, Amrauti did. And there are places in between those two places that didn't have the spike until later. So it's somewhat inconsistent. Uh, so we don't have 100%. So I'm not 100% confident that's the case. Now, the real thing that we would want to use to identify whether Amrauti was the cause is actually do gene sequencing of the strains that you find in Amrauti versus, say, Tane or someplace else. Uh, now, that gene sequencing should be done. It's like the you know doing fingerprints uh, uh, at the scene of a crime, and that's typically how epidemiology has been done. But we're still waiting on the full results of that. Uh, you know, hopefully the government is undertaking that, but it hasn't been made public yet. So we don't know if that if Amrauti was the cause. Um, uh, but you're exactly right. Just because we thought that Amrauti was the cause doesn't necessarily solve the problem because we have to figure out why Amrauti was the cause. Uh, was it uh, because they had a population of susceptible people? Was it because there's new variants and it just so happened that they originated in Amrauti? We don't know the answer to those questions just yet. Those are the questions we ought to be asking. So, so coming a little bit you know, deeper on the why, you know, another explanation you point out has to do with behavioral response, right? And so if you buy this line of argument, you know, we could be seeing this virulent second wave, perhaps due to changes in people's behavior, which in turn has two parts, right? Was there a change in behavior? And if so, why? So if we start with the was there a change, do we have any evidence to suggest that Indians changed their behavior in the run up to the second wave? So first, if you just look at objective 
uh, data on that we have available. We don't have all the data available, but if we look at objective indicators of behavior, um, we don't see strong evidence that there was a massive increase um, just before this second wave. I do believe that there is a general relaxation over time in terms of people gradually engaging more and more behavior. Um, but in fact, we don't see a big spike in, in activity uh, just before the second wave starts. Um, there are some people that have tried to find explanations. Uh, so, for example, from Brouthy, some people say that in January there were elections, uh, uh, village-level elections around Maharashtra, and that might have triggered uh, this. But we have to be very careful because the problem is this post hoc reasoning can lead you astray. Um, you don't want to, some people call this uh, the post hoc propter hoc fallacy, which is just because uh, you see something, then you look for the thing that comes before it. That doesn't necessarily mean the right. thing that came before it caused uh, the, this, for example, in Amrati, the outbreak. Um, so I don't see strong objective evidence of change in behavior, uh, just a gradual increase in behavior over time. Um, so that, that's a reason to doubt it. Now, I want to issue a caveat, though. Our measures of behavior are imperfect. So what do we use for behavior? We use things like the Google Mobility Index. Right. The Google Mobility Index only picks up people that are using location services on their phone right. and on their smartphones. Not everybody has smartphones. Not everybody has the data plans to use the location services. So maybe what we're seeing is amongst the people that are maybe high socioeconomic status that are using mm -hmm. smartphones, there wasn't a big change. But that doesn't mean that we haven't observed uh, other types, you know, we see observe other types of mobility. And in any case, even if we did uh, uh, have uh, Google mobility data on everybody, it wouldn't tell us, for example, were we using our masks when we went out? So there's a lot of, th there's no direct evidence that, uh, that that activity increased, but we don't have complete information about all the risk taking that humans were engaging in at this time. But it would seem to me that you know, the most obvious explanation in some sense is complacency, right? I mean, we have all, wherever we live, been battling this for many, many months. We've, we all have fatigue. We're all tired. We're all fed up. In India, government leaders at the very top were sounding a triumphant note, issuing claims about having defeated the virus, things are coming back to normal. And so isn't the simplest explanation that just people let their guard down? And, and they were, in that regard, you know, following the cues that, you know, senior leadership was sending. So I want to be a little bit careful about this. I think we have a sense in India of saying, if the government leaders do it, we follow. That's not entirely true. In some sense, what the government leaders do is a function of what the population believes. I don't think that in a democracy, the leadership deviates that far. A few exceptions, <laughs> you know, demonetization, let's say. Um, uh, we don't deviate that far from what the population wants. If the population thinks lockdowns are too burdensome, leaders will begin to think that lockdowns are too burdensome. So I want to be a little bit careful. It's not mm -hmm. a herd following the leaders. It's the it's uh, you know a little bit of give and take between the two. Okay. Or the I mean the, the causal arrow it got, goes in both ways. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's right. But but I do agree with you that that people relaxing the guard. I mean again, let's just. For, with all the caveats, let's use Google Mobility. Google Mobility was rising, basically, uh, uh, continuously since the perigee, the very bottom of the economic crisis, which was in March and April of last year. Since then, it's been steadily increasing. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's been no, no notable uptick. But during a big stretch of that, after the September-October peak, you saw reproductive rates estimated from infections hovering around one in a lot of places. The what you know when people thought that 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 India had gotten past the worst of it, that was a long period of three to four months, um, and all during that time, people were becoming more and more complacent. So you have to ask yourself: Yes, I did see an outbreak in say March. 
okay? A massive one, the second wave. Um, but why is it that we had this long period where people were relaxing and we didn't see the outbreak? So it's not enough to just say complacency uh, as an explanation. We have to figure out why there was a big deviation in in September, even though the complacency had been continuous all along. So this brings us to the kind of third explanation, and this is the one that scientists, of course, are um, spending every waking hour trying to understand, which is about the specific variant or mutation of the coronavirus that India is currently battling. What do we know about this variant, right? And if you kind of think about, you know, sort of putting it in layperson's terms, how does this variant relate to what we came to know as COVID-19? Okay, so the first important thing to remember is that uh, viruses are constantly mutating. Uh, what varies across different viruses is the rate at which they mutate. And so one of the interesting things about this epidemic is within a year, we've seen some notable variants. Even before we saw the 617 India variant, and there may be other Indian variants too, Right. Uh, we saw a UK variant, a South Africa variant, a Brazil variant. That tells us that the rate of mutation is meaningful. Now, the open question is, what is the consequence uh, of that variation? Okay, that new variant. Is it more transmissible or is it more harmful? And can it explain what we're seeing now? For reasons we talked about before, uh, I think uh, you know you, you probably want some combination of behavioral change plus something else to see a big spike uh, in 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 cases. Uh, um, so I think the variants almost surely play a role. We have done some gene sequencing that suggests that variants, especially in India, uh, it seems, are a high fraction of people that are infected. Okay. And so that's uh, uh, another piece of evidence suggesting it's, it's more than just behavior. It's got to be the variants. But again, it brings us back to the question of, of how bad is it? So here's the way that I think about it. I have a framework in my head where I think of two types of people and two types of infection. Okay, The two types of people are susceptible people, people who have not been infected before. And then I look at uh, people with immunity, either immunity because they were infected with the old variants or because they were vaccinated with something that looked like the old variants. Okay, so there are two groups of people, susceptible and immune. Now, if I take a look at the impact of the old variants on this population, you see that uh, the old variant will have a relatively high IFR, at least the same as we saw in the first wave, uh, for people that are susceptible. But for people that are immune, it's likely to have a very low effect, very small IFR, even relative to the first wave. Okay. And so the first thing you want to think about when you think, uh, before you think about is the new variants, like, you know, how much of of this is just the old variants? And there, uh, if we see an IFR that's very high uh, and we see it concentrated amongst the susceptible, um, then we think it could just be any variant or the old variants that are causing the second wave. Now, um, who are the people that are susceptible? Well, we already have a hint. Remember back in July, there was the Mumbai study. It suggested the non-slums were, had much less infection than the slums. So we want to ask ourselves now, are these infections showing up in, in non-slums relative to slums? And I think that there's some evidence that suggests that that might be the case. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation with, uh, with someone who I won't name, uh, talking about who in their family uh, and their household extended were infected and and because they were reporting, you know, they were sitting in Delhi and everybody was infected uh, that they knew. But their higher socioeconomic status. And I said, well, what about the the, the domestic workers in your uh, in the household workers? Are they infected? 
And what's very interesting is that the household workers that stayed in the house were infected, and the household workers that went back to their their slums uh, were not infected. Mm -hmm. So maybe what's going on is that we have a bunch of susceptible people that are in the high SES that are being infected now, uh, whereas they were largely spared or relatively spared in the first wave. And so the first wave is a, I'm simplifying greatly, is a low-income wave uh, where the poor got infected. And the second wave is a high income wave, a high income wave where finally the, the, the people that managed to protect themselves because they could from the first wave are now coming out and they're getting infected. Doesn't explain why it all happened at once, uh, but that would be consistent with the idea that there's a bunch of susceptibles uh, in the population. Right. Now, that's for the old variants. But now let's suppose what happens with the new variants. Now, with the new variants, I would expect that the susceptibles are going to have similar IFR. They're just as harmed by the old variants as the new variants. What's really interesting is for the people that are reinfected, either because they were immune before in the first, or they were naturally uh, uh, immune because of the first wave, they were infected then, or because they got vaccinated, which is a relatively small percentage of the population. Sure. So it's really about people that were infected in the first wave. What's happening to those guys? And those are the ones that really worry me. So if they're infected with the old variants, low IFR, but if they're infected with the new variants, we really need to understand whether or not their infection fatality rate is high or low. If it's just that they're infected again, then we just have waves of reinfection, but the costs are going to be lower. But if their infection fatality rate is high, we should be very worried. Because what that means is not only is there reinfection, if the reinfection is with new variants, and that the new variants keep a high IFR. It doesn't take a lot of foresight to think if we could experience a second wave in that group, we could experience a third wave, and so on. Um, so that's really the, the issue. What I pay attention to is who's being infected, susceptible versus not. And then second is of the people that were previously infected, can we identify the ones that were infected with the new variants and what is their mortality rate once they were infected? We don't have a lot of information on that. All we have is the overall infection fatality rate, actually just the case fatality rate. Um, but but that's the big puzzle that we need to answer if we need to know what the future looks like in India. One of the most puzzling things anew, that I've experienced in my own social network is uh, certainly many of the people I'm in touch with who would fit in that higher socioeconomic status uh, bracket were not infected the first time. They have become infected this time. Their children are also being infected this time. They may have been infected last time and just didn't present with any symptoms. They may have been asymptomatic, but this time they're actually presenting with symptoms. So could that be a result of the variant itself? Um, the short answer is I don't know. And it's important that we acknowledge that I don't that we don't know. We don't have a lot of data. Um, I do want to point out a few things before we overinterpret this. The first is uh, if this is a higher income wave, um, it's going to get a lot more notice because as it turns out, we just do a better job of, uh, of giving press attention to people that are um, uh, higher income in India than lower income. That, that's been the case for a long time. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, we got to be careful for, uh, about uh, extrapolating from anecdotes. So yes, right. we can see some symptoms, uh, 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 but that, I don't know what the prevalence of those symptoms are going right. to be. Okay. So I just want to be a little bit cautious uh, because sometimes if we make the wrong inference, we could go too far in one direction or the other. Okay. And actually, by the way, I just want to be very clear what I'm worried about. One of the, the hidden dangers of this entire epidemic is that we close down schools. Okay. Schools have been closed with few exceptions for a long time. India is a country that 
needs to increase its human capital. It has low human uh, human capital meaning education levels. Right. It needs to increase that. We've kind of just paused that for a year. If we suddenly overestimate what the impact is on kids now, you could imagine another year where we pause schools. And India can't afford that. We will see massive consequences from that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and we'll regret it. So that's why I want to be very careful about what we say is happening with children. I don't want to underestimate the impact, but I also don't want to overestimate the impact. But let's turn back to that impact. The thing that I want to make clear to people is that immunity, whether it's acquired through previous infection or through vaccination, immunity does not protect you against infection. It protects you against disease. Okay? Your immune system is not on the outside of your body acting like as a, as a shield that stops you from getting infected. It's on the inside of the body. It prevents the disease from getting, for you, from, from the, it prevents the infection from causing as big harm mm-hmm. as if you were not immune. Okay? Uh, it reduces your probability of death. It reduces your probability of serious hospitalization and so on. It doesn't always protect against every kind of symptom. So if you have low-grade symptoms, that doesn't mean that you don't have immunity. Now, what may be possible, and it's consistent with some of the anecdotal data, assuming that we can extrapolate from it, is that the original variants, largely asymptomatic. The new variants are a little bit more symptomatic, but you're still protected. Even the young are protected against the the serious consequences of hospitalization, and especially serious hospitalization uh, um, uh, and death. So it is possible, consistent with symptoms, that that's true. Now, we just the short answer is still, we don't know. We need to do better surveys to figure out what is the prevalence of this infection, what is the prevalence of symptoms, and that's kind of sometimes hard to measure because people want to sometimes hide their symptoms because they're afraid of quarantine. So then you want to look at things like, what is the death rate? So what I really want to know is, what is the mortality rate uh, by age for uh, the current round of infection? And then secondarily, uh, let's sequence these folks and try to figure out if we're seeing new variants or old variants. And the the kind of the 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 big prize is if we can relate the mortality rate to the old and new variants by age. Then we can answer your question, and then we can see how serious this this epidemic is, the second wave is, and what the likelihood of a, a future wave is, and set policy appropriately. But Anup, everything you've just said also is an input towards understanding the role of lockdowns, right? Because we are seeing several states, localities, whether it's the state of Maharashtra, the the National Capital Territory of Delhi, instituting pretty stringent lockdowns, trying to flatten the curve. Economists, as a result, are already downgrading India's economic growth forecasts, you know, because they're seeing a drop in economic activity. They're seeing a drop in mobility. Uh, We know that the previous nationwide lockdown had pretty dramatic consequences on a whole variety of fronts, education, um, you know, livelihoods, uh, um, income, so on and so forth. How do you think about the role of lockdowns, right? Because there is a very polarized debate, not just in India, in this country as well, about whether we should resort to them or not as a, um, as a primary tool in the toolkit to fight this pandemic. So, um, Two things. First is is how important lockdowns are, and second is what the impact of lockdowns are and how we should think about those. So one of the interesting things I think we learned in the United States about lockdowns, where we had a lot of data on what people were doing and when lockdowns happened and where, we learned that a lot of people reduced their activity even without lockdowns. So uh-huh. uh, counties without lockdowns had massive reduction activity, even as compared to counties with lockdowns. So the 
the, the important thing there is not so much did lockdowns, were they responsible for the reduction in behavior, but really what's surprising is that humans protected themselves even without a lockdown. So in this epidemic, my guess is that you'll see, you would see in, in India in the second wave, so switching location, um, you'll see a reduction in, 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 in activity, in voluntary reduction in activity, uh, even without lockdowns. The question is, you know, uh, should you do lockdowns on top of that? And there are some places where clearly lockdowns have a bigger impact than others. Uh, for example, you know, it can control uh, whether or not stores, as many stores are open and how long. It can control, for example, whether they're large gatherings or not. Uh, importantly, it can control schools. Okay, so so I think that there's going to be a lot of control, a lot of reduction behavior without lockdowns, but there are certain things that lockdowns are going to enhance in terms of, of, of uh, controlling activity, reducing uh, the spread of infection. Okay. But then we got to think about the cost of lockdown. I think that's critical uh, in India. So I think we can learn a lot about what happened last year when we saw a nationwide lockdown. The first important thing is, as you pointed out, income fell. Uh, but the really, really important thing, I think, is that income fell the most for the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a massive, massive reduction. Now, fortunately, uh, if you while we see a massive inequality in the amount of income reduction, everybody saw a massive reduction in income, but right. or much more so, maybe 90% of their income for a few months. Um, we didn't see as big a, a reduction or, or uh, inequality, I should say, in, in consumption, meaning somehow mm -hmm. the poor were able to borrow money uh, or had small stocks of savings they could rely on, probably more borrowing to be able to, to get through. I don't know if that's going to happen if we have a second lockdown. It might be that their ability to borrow and make it through uh, um, uh, is a little bit less. Um, there are some things that we did right in the first lockdown. I do think uh, our analysis of, of what ha happened with food prices suggests that, in fact, uh, a lot of the essentials were supplied through the first lockdown. Uh, perhaps we can do that with the second lockdown, too, to kind of mitigate some of its effects. But we do have to acknowledge there's a massive inequality. So that's the first thing I think uh, we have to think about is the cost, a massive reduction in income, particularly on the poor. The poor still haven't recovered from that first lockdown. The second thing we have to think about is what I said before. Um, if we do do lockdowns, I think that that there are you know, immediate uh, harms and the long-term harms. The long-term harms is when we focus on schools. This is why the, the question you asked about whether or not children are symptomatic uh, are critical. Uh, what I want to know is their death rate, and does that warrant mm -hmm. uh, keeping schools closed for an extended period? I know there's holidays coming up, but what happens after the holidays? Um, that consequence we won't see for a long time, uh, but it'll be very, very large. Uh, so that's the second thing uh, that I would focus on in terms of lockdowns. The third thing I'll focus on is just, I think there are interesting political, and by I'm using the word interesting as a euphemism, there are interesting political implications of lockdowns. Um, I think in the United States, uh, I worry that the lockdowns are going to cause a generation of young kids uh, in, you know, when they get older to be strongly opposed to lockdowns. So uh, our use of lockdowns now is going to generate a backlash that later on might make it difficult in the next pandemic to use them as a tool. We need to be judicious in that. We haven't talked about that in the context of India. Right. Is the use of a lockdown changing the culture such that government there's a lot less support for that government uh, uh, control in the future, and that takes a, a tool out of our toolkit for pandemic 2.0? Um, so those are the things that I would think about in the context of a lockdown. Um, the real answer to all of this is we should vaccinate because vaccination gives you a lot of the protection of a lockdown without the cost of a lockdown. And so if nothing else. Uh, uh, what we should be walking away with was we should vaccinate very, very quickly, and we shouldn't let our guard down, even if we're in a period where it seems like the second wave is over and we're all okay. There could be a third wave. 
we need to keep up vaccination. So maybe this is a good place for us to, to end the conversation on the subject of vaccines. Um, you know, you read what some global health experts write, and they say, you know, vaccine production is not really the issue. The issue is more about purchasing. It's about distribution. It's about allocation or reallocation. Um, that's number one. Uh, however, at the same time, uh, we're in the middle of a, of a brewing firestorm um, uh, between the United States and India, uh, not yet officially, but, but certainly on social media, where a lot of Indians are pointing to the U.S. administration saying, uh, you guys have invoked something called the Defense Production Act which ensures that U.S. contracts for vaccine materials are prioritized before other contracts can be fulfilled. So it's not technically an export ban, but it has a lot of the uh, outward appearances of an export ban. And many people in India are saying, look, we're dying. Um, we need to ramp up uh, vaccine production distribution, and you have become an impediment. So you know, in this broader context, what should the U.S. posture be vis-a-vis kind of global vaccination supply chains? And do you agree with the premise that we've kind of got the production part figured out and it's really about the distribution and allocation? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So the first thing I'll say is uh, I do believe that um, there's a real chance that we've applied the Defense Production Act too aggressively. We, meaning the United States, have applied it too aggressively, uh, covering not just um, uh, covering inputs that are not essential for us completing our vaccination campaign, but that impedes, for example, India producing and other places producing vaccines uh, that are necessary for the global campaign. Um, I think that's bad from a public health perspective. I think it's bad from a foreign policy perspective. I, I think in the next 20 to 40 years, the United States and India relations is going to get stronger. And this is not the best way to, to start out on that path. But I want to be a little bit cautious here. Um, vaccine nationalism, of which this is a strain, um, also afflicts India. Remember, when India was having difficulty with uh, the uh, with the new cases and wants to wanted to increase its vaccine uh, vaccination, um, one of the things it complained about was that it was uh, the population complained about was that they were exporting vaccines, and so the exports were curtailed dramatically to serve the domestic population. That's exactly what the U.S. is trying to do. Um, the only difference between the two is that the U.S. doesn't need to do it as much as the India maybe needs to do it from a vaccine nationalism perspective. The United States is well on its way to vaccinating the entire population. It really faces a problem of vaccine hesitancy, whereas in India, I think it's first order facing a, a problem of vaccine supply. So that's that's the first thing that I would say. The, of similar strains of vaccine nationalism, but India maybe has a slightly better argument in this context. Now, in India, it's very interesting that you know, we should be viewing uh, um, the the pandemic as a war, right? If we were invaded by a foreign country, we would devote all our efforts towards building our weapons capacity. We would repurpose industry. We would not let up. Just because there was a lull between battle, we wouldn't stop producing guns. We would just continue this process uh, in preparation. Yet for some reason, when we're attacked by something other than humans, but just as deadly as any war, uh, that India has faced uh, for a long time, if uh, maybe ever, um, we've kind of let our, our guard down, as you said, uh, in between the, the first and second wave. Yes, we did do vaccination, but we should be vaccinating like crazy. Uh, that's a technical term I just came up with, uh, but it should be vaccinating at a very fast rate. And that means not worrying about pricing uh, or things like that. It should just do everything possible to build up production capacity. Um, in fact, 
we should do that worldwide. India is not the only place we ought to do that. Um, and so that means uh, investing in global supply chains. The U.S. should uh, a lot should ramp up production of inputs into vaccine production, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad. It should allow the export of that once its own needs are satisfied. Shouldn't expect it to suspend all vaccine nationalism if we're not either. Uh, but then India should be expecting to should should itself be doing a lot of things to help out first approve a lot more vaccines. It took a long time before it just said, there's foreign approval, you get domestic approval. Even then, it should be as fast as possible. Second, we need to think about, uh, to the extent that we have production capacity limitations, to think about more flexible dosing. Same issue that's coming up in, in Europe, which is first doses first, fractional dosing, delaying second doses, things like that. Anything that we can get uh, would be tremendously helpful. Um, within, the, within India, we should be focusing on production capacity. Let's fight the debates over whether or not, you know, what price the Serum Institute and others should get in the short. Let's fight those battles later. Uh, the first order issues, let's get the vaccine production up, imports up, and vaccinate as many people uh, as possible. That's probably our best protection against uh, not just a second wave, uh, if we've done it before, but also potential third wave, which I think is, you know, if, if, if we were surprised by a second wave, we should certainly not be caught twice and be surprised by a future third wave. I don't know. I'm not predicting that it's going to occur but it would be imprudent not to plan for it. And so that means investing in production. Then the last thing is really logistics. You know, there's this sense, and I don't want to criticize too much, but there's a sense in India that the government has to do stuff. Uh, The U.S. had this sense too. Initially, if you looked at its first rollout, it was very slow because the government was doing stuff. And it was only when it finally resorted to using private channels, the Walmarts, the Marianos, the CBSs, the Walgreens, that it massively ramped up to like 3 million doses a day. India should think about the same thing. Like if it wants to speed up, it needs to start using the private sector for distribution and quite aggressively. Uh, Yes, it should prioritize, but even within priorities, it needs to use those private distribution channels, which are well-developed. It's not just the government that can do this. Um, One thing that I would note is that everybody thinks about the government providing healthcare in India, uh, but as it turns out, the government only provides about a, a quarter of India's healthcare, three quarters is done through the private sector, and we should be doing a lot more of that um, with vaccination. My guest on the show this week is Anoop Malani. Anoop is the Lee and Brenna Freeman Professor at the University of Chicago Law School and a professor at the Pritzker School of Medicine. Uh, Anoop is a is a rare beast because he understands public health, he understands economics, and he understands the law. I think you've seen all of those traits on display. Anoop, um, uh, it's a Saturday morning in Chicago. You have many, many other things to do. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I think this was a massively enlightening conversation both for people in India who are listening, as well as people abroad who are trying to get a handle on on the humanitarian crisis that's going on. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks, Milan. Thank you for having me. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast